A lot of people claim that they don't like the media, and a lot of time, they're right to feel that way. There's a number of reasons why people can dislike the media. They could have a political bias, they could be pandering, they could be leaving out important information. But put those issues on the back burner for a minute. In a missing child case, presumed abduction, news media is an extremely important resource, and this is especially true at a time before we each had the internet in the palms of our hands at all times, at a moment's notice. The thing is, when I talk about Johnny Gosh's case, news media is more than an important resource. Really, it's the only resource. Here's David Bielenson, director of Who Took Johnny. You know, the media, um, local reporters, um, uh, network news, um, journalists, writers, television, um, even, even the sort of news magazines and sort of tabloid shows, um, spent a lot of time and effort investigating the case. And in many ways, they sort of picked up the slack where law enforcement you know, just didn't have the resources and the time and the manpower. Human beings have short attention spans. We know this. So when a case starts to go cold, a case with no suspects, no leads, it is the duty of the media to remind us of what we've forgotten. And the other thing to remember is that that doesn't just happen. So why is Johnny Gosh such a highly publicized case? with documentaries made about him and countless theories on what happened. Cold cases don't just pop up on a regular broadcast with no rhyme or reason for being there. It happens because either one, there's been some kind of break in the case, or two, someone has had to push to keep that story public. For my first segment today, we're going to talk about the media presence and how ultimately it did lead to a big break in the case. This is episode three of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. I have to be honest, it took me a while to figure out how I was going to start this particular segment. Reason being is that media is such a broad term. It's especially broad now because we don't just have news media, we also have social media. But before we go into that, let's go back to when Johnny Gosh's case was still fresh. Back to the 80s and the early 90s. There was no internet, no smartphones, no way to communicate with someone on the other side of the planet with just a few clicks on a keypad. However, there was the news. Whether it was your local station or a nationally syndicated program, this was what people tuned into. Here's a clip from Inside Edition that aired 10 years after Johnny's disappearance. As to why a report on this case was being broadcast a decade after the fact, I'll get into that in a few minutes. Here's part of the piece by Scott Rappaport. Ten years ago, just outside of Des Moines, Iowa, a little apple cheek kid named Johnny Gosh got up early on a Sunday to deliver his morning newspapers. Seems like all the kids in the neighborhood did it. See, here in the heartland of America, there's nothing more all-American than a boy in his paper route. That's what Johnny Gosh and his parents thought. Until that day ten years ago, when Johnny Gosh disappeared from his paper route and never came home. It's been a decade since Johnny's parents have seen or heard from their son. Ten years since the little red wagon he used to carry his newspapers was found unattended, Johnny missing, no clues to his whereabouts, a presumed abduction. 
In my first episode, I had spoken to Della Williams and Tracy Pampina of the Missing Persons Support Center. Della has worked with law enforcement for many years. She's a police dispatcher. And remember, we talked in depth about how when speaking with police, they can't just give out every piece of information. As much as we want to know every detail, to share every detail with the general public is a surefire way to potentially jeopardize the case. When information leaks, that's how it gets tainted. So for that reason, cops have to remain tight-lipped. Even if they have a lead, they need to collect evidence. They can't just put a theory out there as fact based on hearsay. That's also why in this same Inside Edition story, when Scott Rappaport interviews Lieutenant Lyle McKinney of the West Des Moines Police, he gets responses like this. Do you have any suspects? No. Are you close to breaking the case? No. Are you close to making an arrest? No. But. In times when it seems like all routes lead to a dead end, sometimes it's the job of the media to act as the catalyst that gets things moving again. But it's a very fine line. Here's director David Bielinson explaining where that line is. Johnny's mother, Noreen, is such a force of nature and, and was so instrumental in keeping the story going and keeping it alive that like any mother or any parent, you sort of put pressure on the people and the powers that be because she can't do anything. You know, law enforcement right. is the only person, the only people that have the power to do something. You can't, as an individual, she could pay detectives, which she did, and, and do stuff. You can't, like, you know, start interviewing people and gathering evidence and doing that in a way that, you know, borders on vigilantism and, you know, invasion of privacy. So that, that's also, you know, that's, you know, that's the enigma of the story and that's the enigma you know, of, of a lot of these missing kids cases. Exactly. Vigilantism can poison an investigation. You also have to remember at all times, and I have to remind myself of this, that a very strong belief in something does not make it fact. The forensic sketch that I spoke about in my last episode, Doe Network 174 UMCO, if you had asked me one year ago who that was in that sketch, I would have told you without a shadow of a doubt in my mind, that is a late 20s age Johnny Gosh. But after speaking to Mary Bell, the match panel coordinator for the Doe Network, and after having done more research on the case, not only do I not believe that sketch is Johnny anymore, I think it's extremely unlikely that it could be him in any scenario. It's just a sketch of a John Doe that happens to have some similar features. So you have to be very careful in towing that line between keeping a story active and impeding an investigation. Here's more of the Inside Edition report. Incredibly, just two years after the Gosh kidnapping on the other side of Des Moines, another young paper boy is reported missing. Eugene Martin, 13 years old, vanishing from his paper route on a Sunday morning. Another apparent kidnapping. The similarities between the two cases are astonishing. Eugene, too, has never been found. I want to tell him that I'm still looking for him. I still love him very much, and I want him to come home. Are you any closer to solving the case than you were eight years ago? No. Eugene Martin and Johnny Gosh, for years, their heartbreaking cases were at a dead end. Again, in a report about Johnny Gosh, we hear Eugene Martin's case being brought up. Police have never confirmed that the two cases were connected. But when you go through the bullet points, how do you not? Two paper boys, both from Des Moines, both seen talking to strange men, and both never seen again. And the longer it takes, the less hope we have. If in any way, shape, or form that he could have, he would have called by now. If he's dead, we still want to know so we can bring him home, give him a decent funeral. I gave up hope probably about a month after it happened. 
I think if there was any way possible that Gene could have got to a phone, he would have called. He was too close to Donnie. It was one year ago today that Eugene Martin disappeared in this area while preparing to deliver newspapers. Now, 12 months later, his disappearance is as much a mystery as the day it happened. The nightmare for the Martin family began August 12, 1984. In those first days, FBI agents and volunteers searched the city for clues. Des Moines police say hundreds of hours have been contributed to the investigation, but now only one officer is on the case. No evidence has been uncovered, no matter how hard we tried. There's nothing to investigate. The Martins are trying to follow leads themselves and now have a computer to keep track of information. Eugene's 15th birthday is in five days. He missed his birthday last year, and a cake made for him then is still in the family's freezer. We figured that cake will stay there until he does come home, and he'll be the one to cut it. If we do find that he is dead and we get him home and bury him, well, as far as I'm concerned, that cake will remain right where it's at. We'd plead to whoever did this, just to, they could typewrite a letter so it can't be traced, just to please, if you're out there, show a shred of decency and let us know. Alive or dead, we'd like to know where we can find him. Joanne Merrigan, 5 TV News. That was a local report from 1985 on Eugene Martin, one year after he vanished. And now, here's a report by Channel 13 in Des Moines from November 11, 2010, the day before Johnny would have turned 41, giving a recap of Johnny's case and the police investigation. In it, you'll hear the reporter Aaron Brilbeck talk to Noreen Gosh and to Lieutenant Jeff Miller of the West Des Moines Police Department. This affected the whole community. I mean, this, things like this don't happen in West Des Moines, Iowa. But it did. A 12-year-old boy on his paper route vanishes without a trace. Tomorrow, he would have turned 41 years old. The kidnapping of Johnny Gosh robbed the Metro of its innocence. Children were afraid to go out. Parents watched their every move. Johnny has never been found. Channel 13's Aaron Brilbeck talks with his mother as she prepares to cope with another birthday without her son. It's a kidnapping that would shock an entire community and forever change the way that parents watch their children. A 12-year-old paper boy, while doing his paper route along this quiet West Des Moines street, disappears without a trace. Tomorrow, Johnny Gosh would have turned 41 years old. It's every parent's worst nightmare. A child vanishes without a trace. Well, that's what happened to Johnny Gosh in the early morning hours of September 5, 1982. Johnny usually delivered papers with his father, but on that date, he went on his own to surprise his dad. Witnesses say he was approached by a man driving a blue Ford Fairmont like this one. Less than an hour later... He was gone. Neighbors called Johnny's parents when their papers didn't arrive. His father went to check it out. Johnny's dad came back to the house and said, call the police right away. Johnny's wagon is sitting up at the corner. Papers are still there. He hasn't delivered one. Something's dreadfully wrong. Noreen Gosh called the police and then spoke with several of the other paper boys who last saw Johnny. They told her about the car and about the driver who approached them. The guy shut off his engine opened the passenger door and swung his feet out on the curb right where the boys were assembling their newspapers. And he started talking about where's 86th Street, blah, blah, blah. Johnny turned to Mike and said, I've got my papers loaded in the wagon. I'm scared. I am getting out of here. I'm going to head home. As Johnny left, the other paper boys told Johnny's mother the driver of the car took off too. The man pulled the door shut started up the engine, but before he left, 
he reached up and he flicked the dome light three times in the car. Then he pulled out and left. Gosh believes the driver was signaling another person who later grabbed Johnny. She says one of the paper boys saw a tall man come out from in between two houses and then follow Johnny. Police began scouring the area, but hit one wall after another. Days turned to months and then years, and still no sign of Johnny Gosh. Police tracked so many leads, they have several full filing cabinets just dedicated to this case. And the things that are good is the awareness that this has brought. This case changed the country. It was the watershed case. Police believe the only real break in the case will come when Johnny's remains are found. They doubt he's still alive. In the ideal world, he's alive and he comes home and everybody's happy, but in the real world, more than likely, you know, our best lead will come when you know, his body is found. At that point, then it becomes a crime scene and there's new evidence so that we can look at. Um, again, as a parent, I, I, don't, I don't know what Ms. Gosh is, is going through and I don't know, you know, maybe that statement I just made is, is kind of harsh, but and that's reality that would be more than likely what, what will happen. But with her son's 41st birthday here, she prefers to believe that he's still alive and often thinks about what his life would have been like if it hadn't been for that fateful day in 1982. He would have gone on, probably found the love of his life, maybe, and hopefully settled down, had a family, an interesting career that he enjoyed doing, like his older siblings. You'd want the very best for your child. Um, the sadness is that that was all robbed from him, and those years are missing. The clock stopped at 12 years old for us. For more than 35 years now, Johnny's story and the timeline of everything that followed has had a life because of media. Certainly that includes the internet today. If you're listening to me right now, you're listening to media coming from either your phone or your computer. So since we're touching upon present day, let's mention social media for a second. Social media might be both the greatest thing ever created and the worst thing ever created. Remember what I told you in my first episode, if you ever decide to go online and do your own research on the Johnny Gosh case, do not take anything and everything you read at face value. I first heard about Johnny a little over a year ago because of a mention on a Facebook thread. Over a year of research and I'm still trying to make sense out of it. And you probably don't need me to tell you that the internet is enter at your own risk. Anybody can have an idea, anybody can believe their own ideas as fact, and anybody can post to the internet. In my last episode, in the first sound clip that you heard of David Bielenson, who directed the documentary Who Took Johnny, he said you have to go through different layers. It's apparent that he was abducted. It's also apparent that he was abducted by more than one person. So, with what we know so far, let's peel back that next layer. Let's circle back around now and talk about why Inside Edition did a report on Johnny Gosh a decade after he disappeared. Here's that same report. And I have to warn you, some of the content is graphic. While in a Lincoln, Nebraska prison, one man claims to hold the key to the puzzle. Do you know what happened to Johnny Gosh? Yes. How do you know? Because I was there when they took him. This is Paul Bonassi, and the story he is about to tell is graphically violent, sexually deviant, and incredibly detailed. A story he says can help solve the kidnap mystery. Bonassi claims he played an active role in the kidnapping of Johnny Gosh, and says he has information regarding Eugene Martin. 
Banasi, himself serving time for child molestation, says Johnny Gosh was the victim of an organized sex ring that preyed upon young boys, that he himself was a part of that ring, and that Johnny Gosh was hand-picked to be abducted. They said that that's the boy that they wanted. They said that they, that they already had a buyer for him. They already had somebody lined up to, to, to get him. That's the one that they were after. According to Banasi, he and two others stalked Johnny by car along his paper route. Banasi's job was to drug Johnny Gosh. When they grabbed him off the street, I was in the car, I was in the back seat. I was the one that put the chloroform over his face to uh, knock him out. Later, Banasi says they took Johnny to a safe house in Sioux City, Iowa, where on the orders of the group's leader, he proceeded to rape Johnny Gosh. Sorry, I don't know what to say. All I could imagine was the pain and the heartbreak that my son was going through and probably did go through for many years. That broke his spirit. That would break his spirit. For a number of years, it seemed like Johnny's case had come to a complete halt. And then in 1989, it would be Paul Bonassi who came forward while incarcerated in Lincoln, Nebraska, to say that he was in that light blue Ford Fairmont on the morning of September 5th, 1982, and played an active role in Johnny's abduction. So who is this guy exactly? That's what we're going to talk about in our next segment, and the dark world hiding in plain sight that he helped to shed some light on. That's up next. Before I start this segment, I want to give you another reminder that some of the content in here is graphic and potentially upsetting, so please listen at your own discretion. In the first few years after Johnny disappeared, the inevitable claims of sightings started to happen. The first notable sign that Johnny was still alive and out there somewhere came in 1985. A dollar bill was given to a woman as change at a grocery store in Sioux City, Iowa, and written on the front of that dollar bill were the words, I am alive and it was signed Johnny Gosh. When that dollar bill was brought forward, it was given to three different handwriting analysts, all who said that the signature was Johnny's. So after that, the Goshes held a news conference in which Noreen held up a photocopy of the dollar bill to show reporters. The Goshes pleaded with the kidnappers to return their son and they offered to negotiate, but eventually that lead would turn up fruitless. Here's a clip of Noreen Gosh in that exact press conference from the documentary, Who Took Johnny? He was somehow able to communicate that he was still alive. It was just such a helpless feeling. When you are a victim of violent crime, only to be there, you know the pain and the frustration in trying to get a case like this resolved. We've been disappointed. Things have not been followed through as adequately as we had hoped. And so therefore, my husband and I feel we must do what we humanly can as his parents. Noreen's frustration is palpable, as it should be. Three years have gone by at this point, and each little tip that comes in leads to nowhere. 
So far, the Gash's only resource is to speak publicly. There were other supposed sightings, too. Around that same time, a woman in Oklahoma claimed to have been walking out of a convenience store when a young boy ran up to her and said, My name is Johnny Gosh and I was kidnapped. And he pleaded with her for help. But before she could even react, two men grabbed the kid and loaded him off into a car before the car roared away. Nothing came out of that tip and the trail went cold again. But... After nearly a decade went by, a young man named Paul Benassi came forward and he told his lawyer that he helped to snatch Johnny Gosh back on that September morning. Two years ago, a convicted child molester surfaced and said he helped kidnap Johnny. He told an incredible tale of an underground network of adults who kidnap and sell children for sex. Benassi claims that an organized ring of pedophiles abducts children and forces them into a life of child pornography and prostitution, and that it happened to him. You know, they force you to do things, and, and they, they photograph it, they, they film it. The whole purpose for that is to either blackmail you into staying with them or split your mind up so that you don't even remember who you are. The reason the FBI won't discuss Benassi is that they feel he is an uncredible witness. Benassi was in prison in Lincoln, Nebraska when he came forward. I've seen a lot of old video clips of him in doing my research. He's a thin white man, black hair, dark sunken in eyes, and he speaks in a very gentle voice, as you just heard in that clip from America's Most Wanted. He himself was a victim of abuse. He was lured into a pedophilia ring at a very young age, where he was forced to lure young, innocent-looking children into the ring as well, and also to have sex with them on camera. Benassi's claim has always been that he was in the back seat of that car that took Johnny. It was his job to hold the chloroform over Johnny's face until he passed out. After the car blew through the stop sign at 42nd and Marcourt, the car sped up down the road where a van was waiting. They transferred Johnny into that waiting van, and the van took off driving over two hours across state lines, and it was there that Paul Benassi was forced to rape Johnny Gosh on camera. Noreen went to the prison to meet Benassi for herself, to have him look her in the eye and tell her this exact account, which he did, and not without becoming emotional when he realized that he was in front of Johnny's mother. And even to this day, Benassi's account of what happened that morning has never changed. And at that moment when he first decided to share this information, that stocky Hispanic man who was driving the light blue Ford Fairmont that morning and had asked Johnny where to find 86th Street now has a name. Turns out his name is Emilio and he liked to hurt people. Here's a clip from the local news, Channel 13, WHO-TV. They were there that day when Noreen met Benassi. Why did they want Johnny? Everybody asks me that. I don't know the answer. They wanted to get kids that weren't used, and they also liked to get kids that were close to their families. Why? They don't like to hurt people. Well, they did a good job of that. I asked David Bielinson for his take on Paul Benassi when he interviewed him for Who Took Johnny. I think if you know Paul's background, his story, his own sort of um, experience with abuse, um, then his persona, or at least at the time, I think he's he's grown and, and matured a lot. I think at the time, it's reflective of someone who's been under that abuse. Someone, you know, there, you might objectively say someone who's exhibiting different personalities or multiple personalities would seem to be off. And yet, psychologists routinely tell you that multiple personality disorder, a lot of instances where you're sort of becoming and pretending to be other people are often 
um, coping mechanisms that you have or you create as a result of severe abuse. Um, so I guess it depends on which way you want to look at it. Um, mm-hmm. Maureen seems to believe him. Um, he's been right about other things. You know, people forget that he was giving information at a time when there was no Google, there was no Internet, to go become the foremost expert on the Johnny Bosch case. And on these cases, you would have to spend, you know, a year living in a library, looking up microfiche and scanning articles and remembering, you know, exact details over time. That would take a very, 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 that would take a world-class con artist, the likes of which we've never seen before. I mean, I always got the impression that he was always telling the truth because one thing that Noreen has said this before, that um, his story never wavered over the years either, that he always had the same story from the time he came forward in 1989 up until present day. He's always maintained the same story. So, like, that's, I think, the the interesting there's like this interesting dichotomy I think with Paul Bonassi is that like you, you can't really be sure of him and yet you believe his story because the story is so credible. Absolutely. Paul Bonassi was also suffering from multiple personality disorder. So it's tough. His credibility was very much called into question. So because of that, Local authorities and the FBI wrote him off as a pathological liar. I want to play you a few clips from Who Took Johnny. This is the part of the film that goes into this case being on America's Most Wanted. You're going to hear John Walsh talk about Benassi. You're also going to hear Paul Sparrow, the executive producer of America's Most Wanted. In that episode, Benassi took the crew to the abandoned house in Colorado, where boys who were sold into the pedophilia rings were kept. You're going to also hear them mention a brand that was burned onto each of the boys who were kept at the house. The brand is an X, and underneath it is a curved line, like what you would see on a rocking chair. Paul Bonacci's a tough read. There were so many facts that he seemed to know that lots of people didn't know. And the Goshes were convinced that the only way Paul knew those facts was if he had talked to Johnny. Paul claims to have seen Johnny in 1986 on a trip to Colorado where Johnny was being kept by a man called the Colonel. I guess he tried to run away from it one time and they branded him. And now here's Paul Sparrow. We didn't know who we were going after. And we had a missing child who had been missing for 10 years. And the FBI was waving us off right from the very beginning, saying these are not credible witnesses, we don't believe this information is valid. So we went into it pretty skeptically, particularly when you have a character like Paul Bonacci, who was clearly suffering from multiple personality disorder, who had huge credibility issues and who had been in prison. We gave some airtime to Paul Bonacci's story. He talked about the branding. He talked about what were pretty amazing accusations. And then these kids started calling us. This one kid came forward named Jimmy who, who had the brand and was telling these stories and confirming what Bonacci was talking about. We went to Colorado with Bonacci. You know, he said, I'll show you the house where they used to keep us. And he described this house with this secret underground chamber where they would hide the kids when the police would come. And there it was. The house is on a ranch in the middle of nowhere. When they drive up to the house, Bonacci is visibly emotional. Everything is coming back to him now. He grabs at his throat. Then he grabs his chest. It's like he can't even get air in and out. You'll hear a producer of America's Most Wanted say, what happened here? What 
dog. <laughs> I remember this house being where they brought us. They kept us here and made sure that we couldn't leave. And, and then he takes them through a grate on the side of the house that leads them to a bunker dug underneath. And I struggle to even say bunker because it's so filthy. And there's pipes, exposed pipes everywhere. There's children's initials carved into the pipes and the walls and everything. Uh, this is where they kept some of the kids hidden away at underneath of here so that if anyone ever tried to come looking for them, they could uh, run them underneath the house here. And so that there was this sense that we're really close, you know, something is going on here. But every time we found a clue, we ran into a brick wall. The owner of the house, which had been abandoned, was a former prison guard who disappeared. You know, the people who had composite drawings never became real people. We never had names. We never could go after them as individuals. We couldn't expose them and get them brought in for questioning. There's the things you think are true. There's the things you know are true. And then there are the things you can prove in court. And the only thing that matters is what can you prove in court. And we didn't have anything that we could prove in court. Honestly, I have to give Paul Benassi credit. To me, he does not seem like a bad person. He was a victim, just like Johnny was. He was abducted into a ring of pedophiles, and he was forced to help abduct other children. And he did not gain anything by coming forward. He was looking for a better deal or money or anything like that. He came forward because he had information that could potentially help a missing child and that child's family. But the scariest thing of all is we're just scratching the surface here. This whole pedophile ring, how far does it go? Who are the people that are buying and selling children as sex slaves? Children who had families. They had normal lives. They had paper routes and dogs who like to go on walks. And they like to go and ride dirt bikes. And who is this person being referred to as the Colonel? We're going to dissect that in my next episode, and we're going to talk about a small Midwestern town that was rocked because of it. Until then, you can tweet me. My Twitter handle is Sarah E. Dimeo. That's S-A-R-A-H-E-D-I-M-E-O. You can also email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been episode three of Faded Out. See you next time.